welcome to SED. I'm your host, Jane Dagme, Editor-in-Chief of Designers Today. SED covers the wonderful industry of interior design from various, often eclectic, angles. At its most literal, SED is the spoken complement to what's written in the pages of our magazine. Esoterically speaking, SED, S-A-I-D, stands for Something About Interior Designers. In a nutshell, the podcast is devoted to the ongoing curiosity and admiration we have for these diverse, passionate, and often quirky individuals. SED celebrates the way they think, work, live, and define themselves. Enough said. Let's get into our show. Emily Morrow Home is a luxury hardware flooring brand whose timeless designs and performance qualities align with the needs of today's discerning designers and clients. Constructed of premium North American hardwoods and featuring thicker, longer, wider planks and beautiful finishes and styles, the floors also have a surface barrier to make them splash, spill, and scuff-proof. Crafted in Tennessee by hand, inside of a medium security prison, Emily Morrow Home is a story of second chances and taking pride in what one does. Go to emilymorrowhome.com for more information and tell them Donatella sent you. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Today, my guest is Jarrett Yoshida, founding principal of Jarrett Yoshida, Inc., an interior design firm with offices in Brooklyn and Honolulu. Jarrett is also a house flipper, Airbnb host, and a cat rescuer. Together with his partner, Dan, they have neutered and found homes for 38 stray cats. Jarrett has always donated his time and skills to charity and currently serves on the board of Womankind, which helps women and children, mostly immigrants, escape from abusive families and sex slavery. He is smart and forthcoming, and not afraid to show vulnerability. Jarrett is supportive of others and can be a little snarky, but very mildly so. Jarrett and I met through the Interior Design Community's Facebook page. We recently revved up our communication when I asked for his help with the September story that we're doing on technology. Working with Jarrett, I could tell he was a genuine giver. Generosity is one of Jarrett's outstanding traits, as photographer and friend Lisa Russman has come to know. Lisa and Jarrett met through a mutual friend whose apartment he had designed. Here is what Lisa said about Jarrett. When you work with Jarrett Yoshida, Whether as a lucky client or a lucky interiors photographer like me, you realize pretty quickly that you are working with a maestro. He is an original and honestly a visionary, the kind of designer who comes up with ideas that ring so true and are so refreshing that you are wowed. With his deep knowledge of the decorative arts, he's comfortable mixing together different periods and his spaces have a zen-like atmospheric quality. I've seen him blend vintage pieces he sourced with items from big box stores, capping it all off with jaw-dropping custom pillows, his own kind of high-low classicism. I've known Jared for a few years now and worked closely with him on a couple of projects. Collaborating with him on a photo shoot is the best. He's exuberant and brimming over with creative ideas. He is so generous with his time and appreciative and thoughtful. He's everyone's biggest champion. I think that Jared is always imagining beautiful ways that people can live because he cares deeply. Oh my goodness, I wish I could see Jared's face right now. I know he is smiling. Thank you, Lisa. Jared's journey from his native Hawaii, where he grew up on farms, to New York, where he lives in a 120-year-old brownstone, included several stops, including LA, Tokyo, and DC. He worked in politics prior to making his way to New York. New York offered the space and freedom that Jared, the creative, was craving. Considering both a career in fashion and interior design, Jarrett chose design because the fashion vibe reminded him of an episode of Mean Girls. He did, however, have clients who were in fashion. Among his clients in the design firm where he first worked was Patrick McCarthy, the editor-in-chief and creative director of W, who died in 2019. It was Patrick, in fact, who urged Jarrett to open his own firm and after mustering all possible carriage, he did. In 2002, Jarrett launched his own design studio, and it has worked out pretty darn well. Fast forward to today. 
While Jared is busy, he's not letting it overwhelm him. COVID has granted Jared more time in the garden, and this is nirvana for him. Jared has the greenest of green thumbs, and he swears by his plant smoothies for plant repair and growth. And he's urging me to make smoothies for my own garden, as he assures me the raccoons will not be attracted to it. And I trust Jared. Before we listen in on our conversation, I want you to know that while the audio on this podcast is not the best ever, and I had to cut quite a bit of talk out about Jared's charity work, you'll understand in a matter of minutes exactly what Lisa sees in her good friend. And now I invite you to discover Jared Yoshida. Jane. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. I did want to take a nap before we recorded, but I did not get to it. But I know from our past discussion, well, let's raise each other's energy because (laughs) I know you can do that because when we Zoomed two weeks ago, you did that for me. Well, yeah, you do, you definitely did that for me too intellectually. It was really fun. So I was, but I, you're, you know, it's so funny, right? With COVID, I'm like, what's more important? Working? Or just going out and pulling some weeds and enjoying my best life. It is it is different now, yeah? I mean, because right. I'm sure you used to work nonstop before. Um, yes, but I still do. Even with COVID, you're not taking some time off? Um, I haven't really found how. I have to say that being in news, and I, I have quotation marks around that, um, yeah. I feel like... I have to keep up with what everybody is doing, whether like I have to keep up with your weeding or your working or your <laughs> photo shoots, you know, because I have to follow what's going on. And it's it's so interesting right now to see all the different ways that designers are um, evolving. I, I think I, I could use to weed more often and just take some breaks. So, you know, I'm looking out my window and I have a garden and there's some. I weeded all this whole area like, you know, two months ago and forget about it. It's like I have plenty to dig into. Um, I'm new at gardening, but but I'm new at it. Yeah. Have you ever um, made a compost pile before? I haven't. And we've talked about it, but then we have these raccoons and possums and everything. And we just don't want to. You can do what when you make a smoothie, right? Try this. I don't have wild animals, but I bet this will help. Make a smoothie and then you blend it. Yeah. Wait. I, make a smoothie of blend, what? Make a smoothie of your uh, for yourself. Uh huh. And then before you wash it, throw in all your vegetables from the freezer or whatever. You know, like I end up like I freeze my leftovers. Uh huh. Not my leftovers, but my scraps. And then when I have enough, I like after I make a smoothie, I throw it in so that you know I don't have to wash the blender twice. Mm-hmm. And then you end up with this kind of like mucky thing, right? And then you just dig a hole around your plants and you just bury it in with the dirt and you mix it in a little bit with the dirt, right? And then it's so impossible for anything to eat because they would just be eating dirt and you should be okay. Okay, so um, you're saying, okay, so you're like, you collect the compost ingredients, yeah. what you would be composting, you freeze that. When you're ready to, to put, you need to get it out of your freezer, you put it in your whatever, Nutribullet or whatever the heck you use. Yeah. And then you mix it in with the earth, basically. Yeah, and then I take it out to the, no, and then I take it out to the garden, and then I mix it in with the dirt. So you you're making like a smoothie for your for your favorite plant. And so we we did this with some of our our hydrangeas and things. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, it went from three blooms struggling, it wasn't getting the right amount of light. We have twenty five to thirty now this year. This one bush, it's insane. And like our. We had a six foot, because we moved into our brownstone, it was super ghetto, like horrible crack den, no mm-hmm, joke. Mm-hmm. And then um, our poor the grapevine was only six feet long. I'll take a picture of it and I'll send it to Jane. It's like 150 feet. It goes to the, to our, it started off in the corner of our backyard. It goes now to the opposite side of the block. So it's literally almost a block wide. It went up, to, to, it went up two stories to crawl across two different heights of telephone wire, left and right, and it's it's easily 150 feet. Easy. 150 feet of grapevine because of the compost pile. So mm-hmm. um, your garden will thrive, and what's nice is that 
you know, it'll make it easier for things to grow. Like if the light isn't right, if the soil acidity isn't correct, you know, if the there's too much clay in the soil or what have you, this is the kind of thing that just makes being a gardener less frustrating. It gives more results and it's super easy. And yeah, so I would encourage you to do it. It's, it's, and then things don't go to the landfill, right? And be gross. You're going to have it turn into worm food. It'll be awesome. Do you have an area in your garden where you sit or cook or? Um, <clears throat> no, I do not. I actually just go out and we have we have two little um, plate areas. We found these beautiful pavers of uh, gray stone. I forgot what it's called. I think it's plate. And it's, they're so huge, right? Some of them are like three feet long and two feet wide, like an inch and a half thick. Mm-hmm. And they were used for the sidewalk. So we've created two areas for sitting and the table there. But usually when I go out into the garden, um, because I'm from Hawaii and the school I went to, uh, it was like college. So we wouldn't have set classes at certain times. So we would have sometimes in one day, only one class. And then the rest of the time we'd have free time, mm-hmm. study or whatever. So we just all sit on the lawn and study with each other. So when I, when I see a lawn by training, I immediately am going, Okay, so I sit down. So for the first time, though, in COVID, I sat down, I got my iPad, I made calls to clients, to vendors, while I was sitting on the lawn mm-hmm. that had formerly been this really dried up, hard dirt patch. It was it was satisfying, but it was 11 years of realizing why am I deferring my pleasure so much? Right. So, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you're doing a garden. What's your favorite plant so far? Well, well, let's just, um, I am barely doing a garden. My partner, Frank, is the master gardener. Um, Mm. So he's really done things. I mean, I've helped him and assisted. And I do like weeding because that's very satisfying. Or we have tons of ivy here. And so we have to cut it down because it strangles things. So ivy is the worst. So I like to do that. Here's my deal. I grew up pretty much urban. Um, I, I do not like spiders and snakes. And I don't mind getting dirty, but I don't want to get bitten. So like I'll get as dirty as anything, but don't surprise me with something crawling across my my Uh, arm. Uh, Then you probably are not going to be a fan of earthworms and everything like that. Um, But the nice thing is you can sort of desensitize yourself to it. So it'll be, it's, it'll be good. You'll be fine. You'll garden more. It's fun. It's really, because you like, you like investing time and energy into things and seeing it pay off, right? I, so, yes, I do. I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm also good sitting here in my office and watching Frank mow the lawn from my, from my <sighs> view and watching him intend. <laughs> I'll do, you know, anyway, that's, that's me, but I, I, I appreciate it. And I think that part of my sanity here and obviously yours too, I think through this is that I have this greenery and the color that is right out my window. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. It, it is. It's the one thing, honestly, about living in Brooklyn, why I couldn't afford Manhattan. But the other reason I didn't want to was unless I had a garden to be in touch with, I wasn't interested in living there because I needed that green, right? Be calm. The date. Well, so, so I want to, we're, we're kind of starting in the middle of your, oh, okay. You I'm know, sorry. Yeah. We were just but that's okay. Sorry. Yeah. Let's start but, at the beginning. So I want to start back a little bit because, okay. So, um, so right now you, you live in Brooklyn, you were based in Brooklyn and, yeah. but you grew up in Hawaii. So yep. what's, you know, how did you get from Hawaii to Brooklyn? So, um, how did I get from Hawaii to Brooklyn? You can tell us the steps in between, but yes. Right. So, yeah, I I grew up, right, the child of two farming families, basically. And, um, you know, I was very lucky. My parents sent me to a really great school called Punahou, Hawaii. And so the opportunities started to widen from there pretty dramatically. And, um, you know, all the kids pretty much leave the island go to college so you leave Hawaii go to wherever and I ended up in LA and then from LA Tokyo and then New York and yeah so it it seems pretty natural at the time but if you look at where I came from it seems very 
unlikely would agree. <laughs> well, so I don't, I've never been to Hawaii and I'm geographically mm. not, not super duper smart, but what island were you on or what part? I am from Oahu or Honolulu and Waikiki are, and that's where most people know. Uh, it, it's really great. There are parts of the island that are very much like a part of like a really clean, beautiful Times Square in terms of density. And then if you just leave a little bit out, it becomes very, very green and all lush. <clears throat> and is that where the it, farms were? I mean, in that? Yeah, the farms are over there, but my... Part of my family is from the Big Island, so right near where the volcano is. And my grandmother used to have an anthurium farm, so I, you know, I grew up running around in lava fields and anthurium farms. Uh, when I would go and visit her, we'd just get onto a plane. Wait, um, I have a question. I, I didn't really understand what what kind of farm you said because remember, I'm it's a, an anthurium. Oh, it's an anthurium farm. It's you know those beautiful red flowers that look like hearts. And they're kind of waxy looking with a long yellow sort of stamen. In oh, the middle. yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So they have white ones and green ones and red ones. And, you know, at the time, I didn't appreciate it, right? There's that saying, I think, that who knows only England knows England not, right? So if you only know that, that space and that area, you don't really realize how special it is. And then there were sugarcane fields right outside her farm. And it was tiny, this farm. It was under two acres, but it was a pretty special place to um, be able to see and play in the frogs. And, did yeah. they sell? Did, did, was it like a, they would um, harvest the, the cane? Yeah. And, the, and then would they export or was it all sold sort of locally? So my grandfather worked in the cane fields as in my uncle's on that side, but my grandmother had the Ethereum farm. Ethereums are raised for consumption largely on the mainland. So mm -hmm. New York and Los Angeles at the time. Uh, it was it was pretty awesome, actually. And and then you went to LA for, for college? Yep. And with a whole bunch of my classmates, we all left to go to school at USC. Mm -hmm. And then after that, um didn't want to stay in LA. I really love LA. It just wasn't quite for me and UC and that wasn't quite for me. Tokyo was amazing, and it was for me, except I was not for them because I am not Japanese-Japanese, and so thus I ended up in New York, What? what? Uh, and where I'm really happy here. But, but okay, I mean, but there's a lot of mileage between D.C. and Tokyo, so, <laughs> so like, what went off in your brain and that you said, okay, I'm going to now try Tokyo? What were you looking for? What were you... I. It was long-term planning, Jane. Um, when I was younger, so I started taking Japanese classes in the seventh grade, and my BFF and I, and we're still BFFs, said we're going to go to Japan together in college because we had been to Japan together in high school for and the summer. Is part of your family from Japan? And we're all Japanese, but I'm fourth generation, so my parents don't speak it at all. Okay. So if if, if I were white, or black or Latino, and I spoke with my accent and the level of Japanese I have, you would be really impressed. But since I only speak Japanese and I look Japanese, people are always going, oh, you should speak it much better. And right, okay, got it, <laughs> yeah. got it. I mean, I, knew, I, yeah. I wasn't sure what your background was. I, I yep, figured yep. part, but I didn't know all, you know. Yep, yeah. all, okay. all 100% of both sides, yep. All right. So you went there um and stayed for, you know, how long? It was only, Japan was only a year for school. And then like the way LA was for school. And, and after that, you know, I had been involved in politics before and nonprofit fundraising and sort of nonprofit world and cause related work, which is why I went to DC. I was actually a PAC gift, a gift from a political action committee sent to progressive democratic candidates around the country. It had been founded by Senator Bradley from New Jersey, who many people know as mm -hmm. being a really great guy, Governor Ann Richards, who was a Democratic female governor yep. at a time when that would have been impossible to imagine. I think it's even hard to imagine now for Texas, frankly, um, having a female governor. And it's so they were in charge of this PAC. And so they trained us with many people who ended up running the Obama White House. And then they sent us out to go work on campaigns. And I worked for a congressman named, I kid you not, Dick Sweat. And his, 
brother-in-law, I think, was named Timber Dick. And I'm going, what the f*** <laughs> is going on in New Hampshire? Y'all got to wind this back. Mm-hmm. But it's real. And, <laughs> yeah, and, I, and so that was the start of me doing a lot more of sort of a nonprofit, cause-related work, you know, for social justice that I was doing before I entered into the more satisfying, I am embarrassed to say it is more satisfying to be an interior designer, albeit less perhaps socially helpful um, part, right? And so um, that's why now, even as interior designer, we do a lot of nonprofit. And the other thing that my partner and I really like doing, and I'm sure many of our listeners do, this is something I think we can all relate to, is saving... Uh, Cats and dogs. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, let's. I okay. So you were a cat. You were a cat guy. Um, I was a dog guy, but then I was forced to become a cat guy. So yeah. Well, I was <laughs> a dog, a dog gal, and um, it's much easier to bring in like stray cats into one's home because they're so independent than it is to bring in a a dog. You know. Um, right. So tell. Dogs are really like children. Right. They are. They are. So tell tell us about the cat rescuing that you and your partner are doing? We sound insane. Um, When we moved to our brownstone, it truly had been abandoned. I think I mentioned that our neighbors were involved in a car theft ring. Well, our house had been abandoned and had just had squatters in it. So we we were able to afford it, right? Because when you're an interior designer, unless you're exceptionally lucky or have married well or, you know, super, super talented, you're probably not going to be able to afford a $2 million home, if that's your, you know, if unless you've laddered up very well. So what year is this that you're, that you're. This is, this is 2009. So this is when bed side, we when still had abandoned cars, some on fire and mm-hmm. had been fire up and down our street. It was the only place we could afford, but I'm like, this is a block and a half from the subway. It's an express stop down. I'm like, I've done this before. We can do this. It's four stories. We're going to rent things out. We're going to make money. And. What happened was, as we were living there, we didn't know the household came with an outside colony of what we later found out was 50 cats, exactly 50 cats. Okay. Um, and I had seen one get hit by a car, and it was so traumatizing. And I started crying. I thought, you know what? They don't know any better. This is not their fault. They, you know, they need to be spayed and neutered and tamed. And Dan, my partner, is such the snow white animal whisperer and getting all kinds of animals to come to him and tame them. We connected with a charity called um, Brooklyn Animal Action. And they're fantastic, and I still do work with them. And we caught exactly 50 cats. Mm-hmm. We stayed and neutered them all. And Dan single-handedly tamed 38 out of the 50. And I used my fundraising skills, and we found homes for all 38. Wow. So, yeah, wow. and that was it, so. I mean, fundraising skills. I I bet finding homes for cats has been easier in in social media mm-hmm. days, right? I mean, can you imagine? Um, yeah, this without, is pre-social media. This is pre-social media. <laughs> yeah, two thousand eight. I mean, there was a little Facebook, but there was no Insta. There mm-hmm. was certainly no bananas TikTok or anything. No hashtag and cats of Instagram. No, no mm-hmm. Twitter. No, so. It was all just relentless speaking with people. Like one of our friends at Calton and Tout, I was like, Vesta, Vesta, please, you have to help us find people to top cats. She helped us. I mean, a lot of our, our, our work network, right, as I'm sure for many of us, our work network is also our social network um, because we meet them, we fall in love with them, and then we become their friend as well as their coworker. Um, there were many people who helped us with getting cats adopted. It really did take a village to get 38 cats home. Wow. Would, um, but I'm just curious, when you say your house came with a colony of 50 cats, does that mean like they were living in your backyard? Like, what does that mean? They were in the front yard. They were in the backyard. We had some in the, <clears throat> the first floor of our house because the first floor of our house did not have windows. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. Uh, but we also felt like we had a responsibility. I, as I said, they don't know any better. It's not their fault. And one of the things that I didn't realize is how loving feral cats could become and how it was sort of this metaphor, right? Sort of the way the garden is for how things be 
not even fallow. They can look totally unsalvageable. It can be unattractive, it can be something that you don't have a connection to. But when you dedicate some energy and you put it out there, it does get returned and it's going to surprise you. And so I, I think about how so many of these cats used to run, run, run from us and think that we we're going to eat them for dinner or something like mm-hmm. that. And now uh, the four that we kept cannot get enough of me when I lie down in bed. They're like, yay, come love us. And yay, you're warm. You know, it's that combination right. of the cat, right? There's always, a, there's yes. never quite altruistic. It's, they're not dogs. Mm. <laughs> Flooring is in interior designer Emily Morrow's DNA. Born and bred in Dalton, Georgia, Emily enjoyed an exciting career in the flooring industry before bringing her knowledge, design experience, and passion for travel to her eponymous hardwood flooring collection. Impressions from a recent safari inspired new finishes such as Tusker, a clean white oak herringbone, and coordinating nine-inch wide plank whose muted striations recall parched earth and elephant tusks. Great Migration, in harmonious brown-gray tones, immortalizes the yearly trek of wildebeest. Whether the subtle canvas for your next project or the wow factor that drives the design, Emily Morrow Home Hardwood Floors provide a beautiful foundation for life to happen. I know that eventually we're going to talk about a little bit about design, but we have plenty of time to get there. So we're okay. We've so cats. We've talked about philanthropy. I would mm-hmm. like to quote something that. Um, Yesterday, I, I sent you a questionnaire and it was yeah. after doing, I think, 33 podcasts, I finally got my act together and actually sent it before before we spoke. And you filled it out like you get an A plus, totally get an A plus on, oh, on filling oh, it out, oh, Jared. Very good. Editor, thank you. Thank you. Um, but I want to um, I want to quote something that you said and then I'd love you mm. to uh, explain and then move forward. Okay. So let's see. Okay. You said. Um, moving to New York City was the beginning of my three decade long emergence from my cocoon of shyness. Ah, oh, yes. yeah, man. Because so you're not, don't seem true. shy to, you know, you're not shy now. So just what did New York bring, help, how did it help you get out of that cocoon? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, when you move to New York, you're at a stage, and maybe this is why I can relate to those women and our, our clients who are at Womankind. When you move to New York, you're at a stage where you're ready to transform your life. You're here to do something different with it, right? Hopefully something that's going to be really soul-satisfying and change the paradigm of how you view your life in terms of just happiness, right? For you to survive in New York as a designer, right? Unless, you know, you're some trust varian or your husband's an eye banker, you're forced to really change who you are, to really address your insecurity, to address your feelings of doubt, of self, self-worth, of am I enough? Am I good enough? Mm-hmm. Right? All these things, I think, frankly, everyone asks themselves. But I think as designers and whether it's going to be interior or fashion or anything like that, for us to really tap into what we can contribute, we have to really be willing to shed a lot of, well, I care what people think. Well, this may not be right. I mean, do you want to design a house, frankly, like in part in this term, but a basic bitch? Or do you want to come up with something that looks really fantastic and unique? And draws on history and draws on art or whatever your inspiration is. That requires you to know who you are as a person. That requires you to not have the clutter of, am I enough? Is this good enough? What's wrong with me? All, all this the sort of creative like curse. That, I mean, you yeah. know. Yeah. This is, our, this is like our super ego talking, right? As mm-hmm. our ther- my therapist likes to say. These are, it's all that questioning that's not helpful that, you, that I have to learn to say, shut up. You are good enough. Yep. You do have great clients. You do make beautiful things happen. And it took me years, Jane, to do that. I don't want to make it sound like this just happened overnight. And sometimes, some days, I'm still going, oh, God, what am I doing? But we on all the whole, do that. Right? And yet, I mean, Jane, the fact that you do it to me is ridiculous. You're so talented. Like, I feel so much better. Yes, but we all yeah. have our saboteur, you know? Yeah, no, certainly. And, and um, when I think about how 
I, I got my firm started, I think I had mentioned this, and, and even this wasn't enough because I didn't believe in who I was. I, I had mentioned that my firm got started, but the editor-in-chief of W and Women's Wear Daily told me, go out on your own, and I'm going to be your first client. And this is somebody who basically runs the Bible of the fashion industry and who had hired before me, Jed Johnson, Jeffrey Bill Huber. I mean, these, these are, you know, these are blue chip A-list names. Right. These so are this not is people who are not known. Patrick McCarthy, yeah. and you worked with him when you were at the... Um, at the first at firm. The first firm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the second firm, which is mine, is the one that he said, start. And, and he said, I want you to start your own firm. And it was a very quick question. He goes, and I'll follow you. And then Gloria, his right-hand woman, who I think whose name could probably still strike fear into many people in fashion who know her, <laughs> called me and said, you got to start your firm. Otherwise, you're going to go somewhere else. You know you can do it. I know you can do it. Patrick knows you can do it. You got to get out. Wow. And I did. And it was, but it was because of her, her not too passive, rather aggressive threat. But um, she and I still talk. Um, and this is 20 years later, but it did take years of constantly telling myself, I'm okay, I'm likable, I have talent. Because ultimately, having someone tell you all this externally is it, not meaningful. Right. It's only when you start to tell yourself, I mean, and you and I know this, right? Because you're really successful and you didn't get there from being a wound up ball of neuroses, constantly questioning yourself. No. And because you can't, right? If you spend that much energy being insecure, you're well, not going to end up being successful. Right. I mean, I find, you know, uh, in those instances when I start to like get in that space, for me, I have conversations with people. It's when I'm, I, I have to get out of my own, you know, distract myself. And it's in conversations with others that I kind of get back on the right track. <laughs> Usually. Right, remembering your value, right? Why you're talented, why people like working with you. Yeah, when my brain starts to like start to snap together again and the pieces and I start to create again in the way that I like to create, then I, then I'm like, okay, or a great song, you know, that puts you back on top or something like that. <laughs> this makes me feel better that even you honey, have Honey, everybody. I mean, even me. I mean, probably Carl Lagerfeld had it, you know? I'm sure oh, he did. Kidding? He was a deeply unhappy person. Yeah. Of course he did. His mom was psychologically abusive. It's horrible. That's There's no way. The humanity that we all share is that, like, am I enough? And, um, I, yeah. you know, so it's it's everybody. Yeah, we need to do, like, one day, like, a panel, like, when, when the D&D opens again in New York or something, right? Am I enough? Mm. hurdles for a creative professional because it's how many young people that I see and and we have a lot of younger assistants in our office I find that my job when I hire my assistants is not to really tell them how to be a good designer right they're pretty technically gifted they almost always have great taste, you know, thanks to Instagram and Pinterest. They're on top of trends. They don't have a knowledge of history of the trend, but they know what's hot now, right? Mm-hmm. But, but, but that can be learned. The biggest challenge I always find is trying to get them to be confident and to trust themselves and to speak their mind and to be able to talk to clients. Like I have made it a point for our assistants to really make sure that I always tell them like, my goal is not to make you more technically gifted. You don't need more of that. What you need is to be more assertive and to be confident. And, and by coincidence, and it's strictly by coincidence, the vast majority of our assistants are people of color who already come with an additional challenge in our industry. As you know, particularly, I mean, there's some more Asians, but I feel like for African-American or Black, and Latino, like there's way less given their, the proportions in the country. Although I, I think it's Tyler Weisler and I are the only Asian American interior designers I've ever seen in the design and decoration in 20 years of shopping there. But, and Tyler's from a town a mile from my house in Hawaii. So uh-huh. I'm like, okay. Um, but yeah, it, it's, Is that a, true? I think that's, that's the most important thing. That's so interesting that you don't, there are not many designers that look like you. That are mm-hmm. in the D&D? Nope. I mean, for, forget High Point. Check out High Point. Other than, to be clear, mm-hmm. 
I see Chinese people there. There are very, very few American Asian ones. And when they are, they're often store owners when I meet them. Like, well, you know, I'll talk to a lot of people there. Inevitably, the Asians are the store owners. They are not the interior designers. They may be product designers, but they're rarely interior designers. Maybe more architects. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's unusual. So I always try to make it a point. Um, and particularly, we have some who don't come from financially advantaged homes. I actually will make it a point to hire those people because, especially for internships, because I really want to make sure that when they get out, they have a, a, a portfolio that's very strong that shows how much management opportunities they were given at the firm because they need to stand out that much more. And I think without that vision, without their cultural background that they're bringing to the table, I think we all as a community suffer from not having the diversity. You know, I mean, how many times are we going to say a Ralph Lauren interior? I mean, I, I love those interiors. I'm not sort of dissing them by any stretch of the imagination, but why aren't we seeing more influence of Cuban designers or people from Puerto Rico? Or designers who happen to come from, like, let's say, the parts of the South that we don't see that are necessarily antebellum. You know, I we're mm-hmm. missing out. Yep. Native Americans, where where is that vision? And you know, of the various tribes. It, and I, I I say that because I know my own work from having lived right in Japan and Hawaii and California and DC. Everywhere I live, because I'm visual. I pick up that visual culture and it emerges in my work in a way I think that's very comfortable. They're going to bring something that we don't see. And it, it's a loss for all of us. It's, it's not just about the idea of fairness. It's also just in terms of Richness. increasing our... Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, not, not, I'll get off my soapbox now. You just mentioned, when I heard you mention internships, What's going to happen with internships right now? I mean, would you normally have had a summer intern or two? And do you? Usually, yeah, we do have interns, actually, and they're all remote. One is in Orlando, one is in Virginia, one is in the Bronx, one's in the Upper West Side. When did they start? Uh, Well, one was supposed to start in the spring, but then her course load got to bananas. So she started right after the semester. And a bunch of people started in like around, frankly, April because they called me early and they're like, well, I don't have anything to do now. I mean, because they were doing school, but then not every school had its back together. And um, it's been really fun, actually. How do you work with interns remotely? What's that like? Well, a lot of calls, a lot of email, but because we're already still remote and because I've been developing this setup from having clients in Hawaii, right, where I'm there for 10 days, I really needed to be on top of what was developing. Not on top of them, to be clear, right, because you need to be have a staff that's independent, I think, as we all know, but really just like, what are you doing and where am I steering this and where are you steering me? And so it's been through Google Docs, through conversations. But I largely let our team, I mean, they know my past presentation. They know what I want. They have access to all our prior drawings. So there are templates for them to follow. And I'm like, okay, go to town. Show me something beautiful. Come mm-hmm. back. And then I look and I'm like, okay, this is great. And like, we're tweaking. But again, as I said earlier, they come with such a great skill set now. I mean, some of these kids, they're making things that are mind-blowing. Especially interestingly enough, some of the Chinese um, interns that we've had, because they go to art school first before they're allowed to go to architecture or interior design school. Mm. So their presentations are are beautiful. So oftentimes I, I tell the American kids, I'm like, okay, they're going to eat our lunch unless we get it together. So look at this, be inspired, and let's show me what you have. So yeah, it, it's... Um, Working and, with assistants and staff and interns. Do you all remote? Do, do you advertise for internships, or do people do they just get in touch with you? You know, um, we don't. We advertise once in a while, but um, our firm has enough media in and in Brooklyn, that, and we're also right near probably the best design school in New York called Pratt. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we're probably the biggest firm by far because we're less than a mile away, in an area that's still, you know, relatively gentrifying. So it's unusual, right, to have a, a, a 600, how big is this? Like a 700 square foot office in your own home as an interior designer. But I'm lucky because we bought it right when it was a crack house. And so since we're close to the school, we have a lot of interns always applying. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, so that's it makes great. their life. Yeah, no, it does make my life easier and they're so talented and it's it's fun to now that i'm well firmly in middle age to see what they're finding interesting like you know that whole terracotta and pink and green thing for a screen color combination mm-hmm. i would never have done that on my own i would still be stuck in sort of that calvin klein fire island at 7 a.m everything's a tone of gray and beige and light blue you know and like green and it, not anymore. No one's interested in that. And that's why the work that we do can range from really subtle, right, sort of washed out neutrals a la Armani circa 1984 to, as I just said, that terracotta pink and green combo. Well, on your on your website, and I was going through some of your locations um, there, and what I noticed was mm. I thought, and, and I don't know um, if you, I noticed bold color. Really strong art. And I was wondering, you know, in I'm not going to, we're not going to go project by project, but do you both work with your clients' collections and help them um, create collections or, you know? Sure. Yeah. Some of our clients definitely would like our help with doing, um, Doing their art, and I and I will say I have a pretty serious take on art. I think more so than many of our colleagues because I don't look at it as being decorative. And when I first moved to New York, I was part of the junior associates at MoMA, where they would close the museum and you would take a tour with the assistant curator or John Elderfield or one of the big curators who everyone wants to sort of speak with at MoMA. But it'd be a tour of twelve of you after the museum was mm. closed. That kind of intimacy and education, that, you can't pay for that. I mean, you could, I did, right? But you, and so when I look at art, I think I'm pretty serious about it. And I actually um, went ahead and I bought pieces, like my first serious piece of art, the very next day was from Lawrence Miller Gallery. And the, the very next day, mm. MoMA came in to buy the, the number two out of five uh, of that series of photographs. And I bought another piece that was by another photographer that's gone up, like went up three times in value in six years. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also at MoMA. Um, but then I also have buy a lot of things at flea markets and eBay. So um, yeah, I, I really love helping clients with art. It seems like you're not the kind of designer who gets a swatch of fabric and says, I need to match this sofa with something to hang over it. That's not the way I, that you buy art? <laughs> no, and I know it's not. And I think you've seen our comments in some, I, I may not have seen this comment, but we, we know other certainly younger designers who are obsessed with matching. And my response is right as the older man, I'm like, you're going to be fine. Just get towards that direction, right? And Use your judgment. And I, I think I need to start saying, you know, when LeBron was designing Versailles, do you think he had freaking Benjamin Moore's color ID on an app? Right. No. Right. He used his brain. And that's why it's organic and it's beautiful. You don't need to have that Pantone color match. And and I, I feel like I need to, like, shake people up and go, like, you're going to find. It's your job. You have a beautiful eye. And I think that's when when my assistants and my interns leave. That's one of the things they leave with is a really strong confidence in their eye. That's so interesting. Just, I like that train of thought because I was thinking about sense of direction and the reliance I have on GPS now. And, Mm. Mm. and without all these tools, these color matching, these, you know, just sometimes I think maybe we're over tooled, you know? Right. Right. Remember there was a time pre GPS, which granted was far less convenient. But we knew how to get to places. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I used to call people up and say, okay, I'm driving from New York to, you know, someplace in Connecticut or Philadelphia or, you know, wherever, you know, and take directions over the phone. And that mm-hmm. was, those, 
those were the days. I love GPS. Um, but yes. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't go back. But I think GPS is really useful. I, what I find, though, is that these other tools can sometimes be a crutch that prevents you from growing. It's almost like there's a point in PT where you kind of have to get rid of the crutch. You have to get rid of the brace and just start exercising that muscle or that ligament or that tendon. Right. And or you're always going to be dependent and you're never going to be able to fully explore what your body can do or what you can do with the designer. And yes, what your mind cool. can do, for sure. Yep. For yeah, sure. But, yeah. But of course, then speaking, going back to tools, and because you shared this with me um, recently, mm-hmm. you did mm-hmm. a photo shoot to t- kind of test how that would... Was, was it a test that you did, remote photo shoot? Was right. It- so what we actually needed to do one for a client. And so... What's great is that I, I also know this photographer, Lisa Russman, out in New Jersey. And, and so I've been telling her my problem. She goes, great, let's go ahead. I'll do it. Because I, I didn't want to get onto the train or to the subway. And frankly, you can't, have a, you can't really responsibly have a bunch of strangers who live in different households come together in a client's house anymore. I just, it's not responsible. You mm-hmm. can do it. It's, it's, it's come on, that's not being very thoughtful, right? And so Lisa, though, has a great eye. She works with a lot of photographers and, and and rather a lot of designers and architects. And so what she did was she went ahead, we did some pre-shopping, right? What we thought would work well for flowers, what have you. She got everything set up. She got me onto Google Chat. Mm-hmm. And we did three kinds of photos of this one vignette that I really wanted to get done. And it was like one that was fairly bare, one that was a little bit more uh, accessorized. And then the third one, which is very sort of OTT and had side tables with library books and beautiful plexiglass objet and everything. So yeah, it kind of spanned all three. And and it took, no joke, Mm -hmm. under an hour to do the three shots of that one vignette because she was... She was so fast that it... It took under went, an hour to get the three different versions? Uh-huh. And so yeah, she would... Fast. It was stupid. So she would, you know, I guess maybe you started with the least accessorized or whatever, and then she mm. would she would take the shot, and then you'd look at it together, and then if yeah. you had to make any changes, say, like, you know, move the camera a little bit or blah, blah, or move the chair mm. to the right. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And so, wow. So, um... And who provided, did you, did you tell her what props to get or did you box up props? Oh, we were or? talking about it. And then, so what happened was she knew that we had some in the house already, right? Because she had to do the walkthrough remotely. So we, I always do a pre-walkthrough with photographers anyway. Right. And so she was like, okay, I think we can do, and we were sort of doing this on FaceTime. This, 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 this. And I was like, yep. I'm like, no, but I think that plant needs to be a little higher and why don't we get some flowers that are going to be purple and blah, blah, blah. And so we sort of shopped the house mm-hmm. and then we made it happen. And um, certainly, right, there's some clients that you can't do that with because if you haven't fully staged it already, that would be a little bit more challenging. But with a lot of clients, if they already have really great taste, they probably come to you with this nice accumulation of objet and goodies. Or you've been able to sort of accessorize it enough that you can stage the photograph. So it was it was a combination of the latter two. And there there was next to no purchasing except for live um, flowers. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's, yeah, it's yeah. great when you can borrow from other rooms and, and pull it oh. together like that. Yeah, do you yeah see, it's so organic. Do you see doing more of that perhaps? Are there do you have locations now that have not been shot that you want to get shot? There's ones in Hawaii now. Oh. But, but the, the concern is, do we have the right photographer? I mean, this is not something you can have someone who just shoots for Instagram. Right. They need to have a really strong background in lighting and understanding how to foreshorten things, making sure they understand how to like create separation between objects. It has to be someone who is a trained photographer, not I take pictures with my iPhone and post it to Instagram. You know, there was a professional lighting setup involved. Um, it wasn't just a straight camera shot. 
I'm because, and I'm saying this specifically because I know there are photographers out there who will just show up with a camera and just shoot it straight on, not stage it, not think about separation, not think about the foreshortening, not think about the contrast. And you can tell. And the photographs don't have the kind of depth I think that you need, um, particularly if one day, let's say, they wanted to put it into print. It's not going to look great. Right. Or the resolution's not. I mean, you know that change that in and on. Yeah. Let's preach it to the choir here. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, another thing that I want to talk to you about is um, your your flipping houses, um, how that's working for you, and your Airbnb, you know, how you... um, have some, oh. an Airbnb in your brownstone because yes, has anybody bu- booked anything in the? In you the- know, we have had a few bookings since New York has opened, but our Airbnb, we were super host in our very first year in the first three months that we did it. I, I'm so proud, and then when and we even had August fully booked in January, but um, what happened obviously was COVID hit. Travel plans have changed. There are no quarantines. Um, Clearly, I think unless we get it together, I don't think we're going to have a lot of foreign travel coming in anytime. Would you feel comfortable or would you rather not do it right now? I'm okay because it's an entirely different apartment. I mean, I actually really enjoy being an Airbnb host and we do sanitize everything and clean it really well, all those services. So I'm not worried about that because I think if you follow protocol, you'll be fine. Risk is so minimal. Is it on the Um, first level of your brownstone? It's on the second level. They get the parlor floor, the glamour floor, okay. because my partner and I were supposed to move into there, but because of his illnesses from 9-11, we couldn't. And I thought, oh, let's just uh, make this into an Airbnb. This is ridiculous. So yeah, it's an Airbnb. And I live on the first floor with the eight foot ceilings and everyone in the Airbnb gets the 12 foot one. Right. <laughs> Sad. Yeah. It's really so. pretty. It's on your, it's on your website. Um, yeah. Yeah, it looks good. And you, I also watched the video that you sent me the link oh, to, which I was did. great. And then, so tell tell us about house flipping. How how is real yeah, estate right house now? Flipping. <laughs> yeah, my first job when I came to New York, uh, I was working for these two guys that were in real estate development, and like they sold um, Lever House to Abe Rosen. And if you know he who he is, he's like the guy who helps related and Equinox and Hudson Yards and Ewa and whatever. I mean, you name it, he's involved, right? Mm-hmm. And my, my father and my grandfather, after they left their farming lives, actually both got into owning apartments and condos and separate houses. So it's sort of inevitable, but now I do both, right? I'm doing the construction and the ownership of property. And it's pretty exciting. We're on... Our first one, I broke even. Our second one was a little challenging because our neighbor had hung a Confederate flag in the backyard when he saw our agent was black. Mm-hmm. That was that was that was challenging. <laughs> so, but finally, he did take it down, and then of course the house sold right away. And where was um, this? That was in this town called Hop Hog, which apparently has some issues. And now our third house, and we're in the middle of purchasing and hopefully we'll close by Friday, is in some place called Port Jefferson, mm-hmm. which is where the ferry goes to Connecticut. It's beautiful. It looks like the Hamptons at like a tenth of the price. So um, it's exciting to be doing this. And what's great is I feel like we can bring our skill set to the fore and because we know what clients want. But it interestingly cuts out the dialogue of what clients need and want, which is hand-holding. And I'm happy to do that for our clients, but to not do it, right? Because right. it's my house. Yeah. Very interesting. It takes next to no effort. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating. And oftentimes, because these are homes outside of the city, they don't have the same level of drama that comes with dealing with boards and supers and neighbors that live under you and on top of you and you know restrictions with traffic and yeah i think everything's easier out of the city yeah but i had no idea jane how much easier it was in long island than here in new york city and yeah so that's been really great and i've been enjoying this so hopefully this third one our our, our, we are planning i mean we've always planned but our plan again is 
to make money, but this time the margin is even bigger than number one and number two. So I'm hoping that this become part of, I guess, my fourth business other than running the Airbnb and having an interior design firm and then, you know, just owning the property and renting it out. Yeah. And all your charity work, which, you know, is, and is the takes work, a lot right. of work. It takes a lot of time. Oh, those little kitties. Yeah. Yeah. It's every day. It's an hour just to feed them. And they're in my house. I can't imagine all those people take their time to go to the shelters and take care of those dogs and cats and little wild critters that need help. I mean, God bless those people, man, because it takes time. Do you, with your um, real estate investments, do you ever want to look outside of the city or or, I mean, outside of New York, I should say? What is interesting is that um, my partner's illness is requiring him to spend a lot of time in Hawaii. So we are looking at Hawaii and seeing what should we be doing there. The rate of return in Hawaii, though, is not as high as in New York, simply because there aren't enough salaries there to support that sort of like flipping um, phenomenon. You need certain factors to have that really work well, and Hawaii doesn't have two or three of them. Right. And so if we bought it, it would be for him to live in. And then, Jane, when he's, he may not be, you know, once COVID is done, we'll have time and open space. So you, you might guess, go over and stay. We'll come up with an itinerary for you. and. You can enjoy Hawaii like a native instead of like a tourist. Yeah, no, I've um, my sister who lives in Seattle has been and she's like, Jane, you must come. But let's I I want to cover one more topic because you brought it up and we haven't really talked about it. But you're, you know, a little bit go into your personal life um, because you've mentioned Mm. your partner, Dan, twice. (laughs) And Mm. um, he uh, was a fireman. Right. Uh, And and so um, has been affected by 9-11. So. Yeah. What's, I mean, what were you to? How long have you been together? We've been together for now like eighteen years. Eighteen years in October. So long time. I mean, yeah, so man. Before, oh my god. So after nine eleven, you guys right together. after nine eleven mm-hmm. we met. Yeah, and um, he's a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend mm-hmm. from my school in Hawaii, and so I trusted you know his references and. Um, yeah, good guy. Um, but he's really ill. I've seen him almost die. I, I, I've lost track. Uh, I, but I think it's almost 10 times drowning. Uh, we thought he had an aneurysm. I'm not counting his brain tumor, uh, drug, um, contraindications for things we didn't know. I saw his heart go down, beat rate go down to 20 times a minute, which apparently is really bad. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I, I had no idea until the nurses were looking at me. And you know, when nurses panic, just as a heads up for anyone listening, it's not a good thing when nurses are looking at you with an urgency that something's wrong because they are pretty damn calm cookies, boy. Mm. So, uh, but when, when it's a breathing or a heart thing, they will, you'll, you'll see the adrenaline start going. Um, yeah. So, this has all been going on and, and I, you know, lessons I've learned again is how important life is. And, um, yeah. he's helped me to really make sure I, I think out tiny things that it's embarrassing to talk about, but he has helped me to focus on what's important and that, you know, I'll always pop back from almost any sort of obstacle that I'm going to be fine that all is going to be well. And he's, he's really a voice of reason for me. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, dealing with my sort of frenetic designer ways. And, and he actually also is a very talented florist after 9-11. He went to go do flowers for Ralph Lauren's house and office and home. So he knows Mr. and Mrs. Lauren and um, for Bureau So he Way. just had this sort of ability and talent <clears throat> for, for doing floral? All the art installations that you saw and every single thing through my um, website, Dan has done. Wow. So he does the That's art. Great. Yeah, they're you, pretty good. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this is a guy who was a fireman, blue collar, rugby playing Marine, and then discovered, as, as his one of his best friends said, Oh, Daniel, you've discovered your inner gay. Finally, I was so worried that this was never going to happen. He's a really talented ceramicist as well. Um, yeah, no education, no background in art, but then we'll come up with these shapes that are very reminiscent of 
uh, early Greek pottery. I mean, it's really interesting when you start to see when people who have no exposure are intuitively making these shapes that early Greeks are making. I'm like, like there's something about that shape that's calling out to human beings. Um, so he's he's really talented. I've learned a lot, and he has been supportive of my business certainly when when he's well, because mm-hmm. very often, very often he's not. And the reason he lives in Hawaii is, um, for anyone out there who may know, a lot of people were poisoned at 9-11. And the repercussions of that were still echoing now through survivors. So he was one of the lead people fighting for that. You know, for that in C, I watched in some Hall of that, the testimonials yeah. and things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's pretty, it's pretty intense that we yeah. have to have people fight for health care. But he did do that. And so it's inspiring to be with somebody who's constantly doing it. But after he went to the hospital 26 times in six months, the doctors said he can't live here anymore. Mm. will die. And it was pretty clear because when when that sort of season of pain ended for him, which is tied to barometric pressure changes, yep. when that ended, I started crying during that season. And I said, I can't do this again. I said, and if I can't do this again, right. what was that like for him? You know, being in intense pain. I mean, this is somebody who, right? He fights fires. He is not those guys, they don't yeah, complain about right. anything. In fact, they need to complain more and, and and speak out for their rights more, and they don't. And so he actually said, yeah, Jared, I, I have to do this. You're right, I have to. And so we moved to Hawaii, and I'm, I'm so grateful for the network of my classmates, really, that stepped up and have taken them into their family, like literally taken them into their family home. And have watched over him, made him part of their families. It has been. Sorry, I'm crying. It's, I was it's gonna overwhelming. Say. Mm-hmm. I'm really grateful. Yeah, I mean, I've known most of these people since I was 12. So I'm going on four decades later, and for them to feel that kind of love for me is. Yeah, yeah like, and it helps you to, I mean, it, 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 all that distance between you, that's like the best that you could hope for, right? That he's yeah, in it's good a continent hands. and an ocean away. And right as, and when, when I, and that's another thing, like, you know, when I want to tell myself, oh, I'm not good enough or whatever, people a continent and an ocean away are taking him in. He's also really funny, though, and he's pretty low key, except for needing to go to the ER once every two weeks. So other than that, you know, he's a pretty good house guest. Right. Um, so when he, do you think you'll get out? Things. When do you think you'll get out to Hawaii? Jane, that's, I think that's what everyone's wondering in general, right? I can go out to Hawaii when either this virus mutates and becomes less, less deadly to him or when, um, you know, we figure out protocols for travel. Yeah. It, but it, it's hard because he's immunocompromised. He has cardiac issues and pulmonary issues. So for him, he really, really, really... The mask thing is ultra critical and not getting onto the plane. So, yep. So it's it, it Zoom it for is. now. And, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. FaceTime, and it is what it is. Yep. I'm just going to be grateful that he's alive, healthy, and has my friend. So, I, yes. I don't complain. I, interestingly, I don't complain about that. And also, I think, how long have you been together now with your, with your partner? Five, almost five years. Right. So right, you're at that cusp right, of knowing like him really, really well. You're like, you know, you could go away for like a month. I'm going to live. 18 years later, you're like, honey, you have your best life. You go do what you need to do. And we FaceTime and we talk like two or three times a day. Yeah. So it, it, we don't have a chance to meet each other. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, I, I think separation is, is, is healthy for people. And, yeah. um, you know, it's just that when you know that you can't travel, Mm, that's yeah. something there that's different you know so. work is busy enough and the kitty cats and the charity stuff keeps me busy enough my friends are keeping me preoccupied enough that um i don't really have too much of a chance no him. right yeah you know i want to say uh shout out to the interior design community facebook page because that's where i first met you that's where yeah. you know our posts crossed and yeah. um and and I'm glad I did. Yeah, I'm so glad that we met too, Jane. I am really excited. And I hope that you're going to come to New York 
soon. And I, frankly, I hope everyone comes to New York soon. Oh my God, we need you guys. It's so funny. The They're not going to let us come. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the city without, without, you know, our fellow Americans, it is interesting. It is quiet. Mm-hmm. It is, it, it doesn't have that prison you get when you walk out the door and look at you, crazy person standing in the middle of the sidewalk and just standing there and making us walk around you. None of that. And none of the bustle. And um, I, I, uh, I will say, I actually, I, well, there are parts of town I could do without, do without it. There are many, many parts of town that it, it doesn't feel right. And there's a presence and an energy that's missing. So I hope you come up soon. Mm, well, yeah, I'd like to come up in the fall, winter. We'll see. We'll see about that. But yeah. if we do, I want you to tour me a little bit around Brooklyn. And I want to check out your place. Yeah. So. Okay. Great. Yeah, yeah, please. All right. Okay. So thank you so much. This has been a, a great thank conversation. You. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to said. I sincerely hope you got something of value from the podcast that feeds your brain and fills your heart. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you're in the interior design trade and related industries and would like to sign up for a complimentary subscription to the printed or digital magazine, visit designerstoday.com right now and sign up. Until next time.